you will take your Bibles and open it to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. We'll begin reading here in just a moment in verse 17, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Again, uh, the book of Acts uh, chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, we uh, turn our attention uh, back uh, to the exposition of Acts. We uh, left it off a few weeks back to uh, do some uh, very uh, intentional uh, instruction related to the family. And even in my studies, uh, uh, there was somewhat of a, a renewal and revival uh, of my commitment to be uh, what God would have me to be in the, in the course of my life as a husband, a, as a father, as, as a grandfather. And I think uh, we can always do well uh, to, uh, to heed those things. Uh, as you're turning, uh, I would wish uh, to each of you uh, a happy and a safe Fourth of July. Uh, it is always incumbent, it's always God's command that we pray for those that are in authority over us. Uh, I would add to that that we should uh, pray uh, for those that choose those, which is, again, those that vote, uh, that they would have wisdom in, uh, again, uh, installing to leadership uh, those that would have uh, wisdom, uh, that it would be informed by the Word of God. Uh, as you heard uh, throughout the course of our uh, attention given to the family, uh, there is great trouble at hand. And so we need to be a people uh, that do exactly as God instructed, and that is to pray, uh, that is to uh, honor and to, to submit, uh, unless, again, uh, they force us into the situation where we uh, must make a choice between civil government and uh, obeying uh, the sovereign God who rules over all, who has revealed his will for us uh, in his church. And so, again, I urge you to pray and to give thanks uh, that uh, as difficult as I think things are and that they may become, uh, we are still far better off than 90% of the people in the world, uh, both who are alive today and those who have ever lived. And so for that, uh, we give thanks. Again, uh, from Acts 20, uh, 17, Paul gathered the leaders of the church in Ephesus as he made his return journey to Jerusalem. Uh, it is a meeting that in so many ways at least reminds me of Jesus' meeting and his words to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. It is definitely at least from Paul's perspective, somewhat of a, a farewell sermon, farewell discourse. Paul knew that he had taught the truth, that he had lived out the implications of that truth, and that those who would follow his example must do the same. He also knew and wanted to issue the appropriate warning that those who would continue to carry on God's work we're going to face opposition as he had and even Jesus Christ himself had. Paul challenged and charged those leaders and entrusted them to God. And he knew that only through the power of God's grace to equip, empower, and encourage them uh, for the task ahead could or would the church survive and even thrive. Paul's word is instructive 
to both those who lead and those in the church who don't lead, as we both want to embrace and employ a biblical view of how to conduct ourselves in the household of God and be instrumental in the growth of God's kingdom. And so read with me now, if you will, from Acts chapter 20. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the, the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, declaring both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count, account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among, you, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. I pray that your spirit that inspired these words so long ago uh, has been at work in my heart and my mind preparing me to preach these things uh, and preparing these people uh, to hear uh, these things. I pray that you would uh, so work among us uh, that, uh, that you would enlarge our hearts so that we may know even more and more of the, the greatness of, of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, may we 
leave this place. Not only saying that it has been good to be in the house of the Lord, but saying that we can never be the same again. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul had completed the third of the missionary journeys that we see defined, described, detailed in uh, the book of Acts. He administered to the church in Ephesus. We've looked at those accounts a few weeks back. And upon uh, the hostility uh, rising uh, against him there in Ephesus, he uh, departed to go back into the Greek peninsula uh, to follow up with uh, the churches uh, that were founded there as a result of him going there having uh, seen, having heard uh, what we often call the Macedonian vision, this man uh, from Macedonia who appeared to him in a vision and uh, compelled him uh, to come over into uh, Europe. So upon completing that work in Greece, uh, he determined that it was important to return to Jerusalem with the offering he had gathered to relieve the suffering of the Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, His goal in his travels was to arrive Uh, before Passover. This offering would also demonstrate the solidarity and the unity among the Gentile and Jewish churches. He desired to meet with the Ephesian elders, and he called them to himself there in uh, Miletus. Uh, And in, in what is very much a farewell discourse, Paul reflected upon his ministry in Ephesus and defended the message, the manner, and the methodology that he had employed in Ephesus. He warned these men of the incipient dangers that would threaten them and the church. And he charged them to be faithful to God's call, faithful to God's word, and faithful to God's work. And he stated, of course, very poignantly, that it was his expectation that they would not see one another uh, again. And so I don't think he called these men uh, to him there in the port city because he was afraid of going into Ephesus. Uh, I think he called them because uh, he was uh, in a hurry. Uh, He wanted to get to Jerusalem at an appointed uh, time, and he did not want to be distracted by that which might happen to him in Ephesus. Ephesus. Uh, He was going into Jerusalem knowing that he was going to face hostility. Uh, So I don't think he was afraid of what he might find in Ephesus. But again, uh, he had an agenda and he was going to keep that and press forward uh, after this really what is probably a fairly brief meeting, but important meeting uh, with these elders from the church at Ephesus. And so we can see that this is a somber gathering. Um, there, there, there are serious issues uh, that Paul wants to uh, address uh, with them. Uh, certainly, there's some uh, things that are peculiar uh, to this episode, to this uh, particular uh, setting, but there's also things about it, I think, that are universal. Uh, Paul was very concerned about the present and future welfare of the church, Uh, He was uh, concerned about enemies that were both external and internal uh, to the church. And so he has a word of instruction and a word of warning 
uh, to uh, these men. Reminds me of what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4. Brothers, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If you survey the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation, what you find is a long record of God's people being repeatedly persecuted. That the world, the unbelieving world, has always opposed the truth and has always opposed and in that opposition even persecuted the people of God. And so Paul is concerned uh, that uh, the church, both uh, the leadership and the membership, do not uh, become discouraged, do not become dismayed, do not decide for themselves that it is not worth the effort. Uh, but Paul says this is part and parcel of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We should expect it and we should be prepared to stand against this. Uh, even from the earliest days of his conversion, God had revealed uh, to Ananias all the way back uh, immediately after Paul's conversion that he was going to show Paul that you are going to suffer. I'm going to show you the, the many different ways that you're going to suffer for the, the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to be in prison. You're going to be challenged. Uh, you're going to lose greatly things that you now value. But because of the grace and the power of God, the Apostle Paul uh, was and, and is uh, a great champion for the sake of the gospel. Now, what I, I want to take this opportunity to say a word about the identity of the invitees. Who were these men that Paul called to himself? And they're described here in our text in verse 17 as the elders of the church that was in Ephesus. He calls the pastors of the church. He wants to talk to the leadership of uh, the church. And, and, I, and, and since it's here and, and, and there's much going to be said to the elders, about the elders, for the elders, for the sake of the church, uh, I think it's worth a, a, bit, of a, a bit of time to, to develop this just uh, a bit. Here in this passage that we just read, Paul is going to use all three terms that I have pointed out to you over the years that define, describe this office, this, this role of pastor. Uh, the word that we read in verse 17, elders, is the translation of the Greek word presbyteros. Uh, here later in the passage, he will use the word episkopos, which is typically translated either as bishop or overseer. And then he also utilizes my favorite term for describing uh, the office and the work assigned to these men, and that is poimain. Uh, it's literally shepherd, but many times you'll see it in your Bible as pastor. And so I think there's a lot of confusion many times uh, because of the way these terms have been employed across the various denominations, sometimes the way they're, they're utilized. You may be familiar uh, with what we call the Episcopal Church. Uh, sometimes it's called the Anglican Church, okay? And in their structure, 
they have bishops. They have episcopoi, okay, which typically work outside of the local church, but yet they have authority over that local church. I think it's a misunderstanding of what the assignment or the job description is for those that would be a, a, a bishop or an a, episcopos. And then uh, we are familiar with other groups such as the Church of Christ. They have elders, but now I don't know if this was a local thing uh, in my context growing up, or I think it's probably fairly universal, but Church of Christ do not call their preacher, their pastor, they do not refer to him as a reverend. They have an objection to that. And typically you will hear of Church of Christ ministers, okay? So sometimes we go, wait a minute, ministers, elders, okay, what's going on with all of that? Uh, of course, I've mentioned already the Presbyterians take their name from this word, presbyteros. Um, if any of you have ever seen uh, uh, John MacArthur's name printed on stuff, usually it'll say something like John MacArthur uh, Jr., pastor, teacher, Grace Community Church. Uh, the late Harry Reader at Briarwood, he did the same thing. Harry Reader, pastor, teacher. Because what we see in Ephesians 4 is the two words joined uh, together, uh, that of a, of a poimain and that of a teacher. And so uh, I, th I like that designation. That, that's the one that kind of appeals uh, to me. Uh, but, but all three of them inform us as to what we are uh, to do, what, what our assignment is. That is, uh, as uh, elders, uh, supposedly, sometimes I look in the mirror and question it, uh, I'm supposed to have some kind of wisdom, okay, uh, that, that I'm supposed to have some insight. And those that serve with me, more about that in a minute, supposed to be wise men, that we do the work of oversight. We are constantly looking over the congregation, and exercising oversight, exercising correction, exercising uh, uh, insight into what's going on in uh, their lives, even saying a word sometimes of rebuke for the sake of the protecting of, of the flock. And then, of course, uh, poimain, and I think maybe the, in some sense the broadest, but also in some, some, some sense the, the deepest uh, or the word that gives us the deepest insight into what a pastor would do is shepherd. The assignment is to shepherd the flock of God. Notice I didn't say, I'm shepherding the flock that belongs to Tim Evans. You are my flock. No, you're God's flock. Very clearly, those assigned to this flock are under-shepherds that serve the chief shepherd and will give an account for how we've ministered to the sheep of his flock, okay? And so I think those things are, are incredibly important. We see here he called several men at least a plurality of elders from the singular church at Ephesus. And we see uh, this referred to both in Acts 14 and Titus 1.5. And so it is my conviction that a church have multiple elders that share in the responsibilities, that share in the leadership of, uh, of the church, okay? And so uh, uh, sometimes that gets a, a bit confusing, uh, but I think it's a, a great exercise of wisdom on the part of the church so that the pastors, the elders 
uh, can have some accountability among themselves, have the opportunity uh, to counsel among themselves, even uh, protect themselves from uh, whoever. But I can tell you in my own experience, particularly in my early days, something would happen and it would set me off. And you know what I was fixing to go do? I was fixing to go straighten some folks out. Yeah. Yeah. I was fixing to have a little talk. And some of my wise fellow elders would set me down and say, listen, you need to calm down. You need to cool off. You need to think about this. Uh, and particularly wisdom, and I, and I, you know, I, I hold this to this day. I'm very careful about emails and texts because I can be kidding and you not take it that way, right? You know what I'm talking about? And I think that's excellent wisdom, okay? And so th that's very important. E even preparing for uh, continuity, uh, that, that the work goes on. You've, you've heard me talk about the disaster of the church I grew up in. Again, nine pastors in 20 years, from the time I was five years old till I was 20 years old. And two of those pastors served over three years apiece. So do the math. And, and so it, it was just all, you know, we were always going out to look for the golden child, the, 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 the hired gun, the, the guy that was going to solve all the problems, and we'd bring him in. Guess what? We found out he couldn't do it. Found out he wasn't up to the task. And uh, again, suffered great disappointment and great destruction uh, throughout uh, the church. And, and there's just a diversity of giftedness and even a diversity of temperaments that is very healthy. And so we see the, the wisdom of having uh, multiple men uh, do, her, uh, carrying out this, this role. And I see this fairly frequently still, that one of the foundational causes of discord and, and difficulty and distress in a local church, particularly smaller local churches, is that the congregation and the deacons and the elders are very confused about the roles that they play, okay? And particularly, uh, you, you see many times in smaller churches that uh, the deacons are functioning as, as some kind of board of directors, and it, it causes a, a great, great difficulty. And, and in fact, in some churches, and I'll borrow a line from one of the political commentators, that one of the problems in Washington, D.C., is that all the bureaucrats that really are the ones running the country, whether you know it or not, look at the elected officials, the congressmen and whatnot, where you're just the summer help. You'll be gone, but I'll be staying here. And a lot of times in the church, churches or deacons look at the pastor and go, listen, buddy, I was here when you got here, and I'll be here when you're gone, and all you are is the summer help. And so, again, it's just a very dysfunctional way of understanding what these elders are to do. And so, certainly, it is a, a cooperative arrangement. And I've told you before, I, sometimes I struggle, uh, and this is not a new thing, don't, don't 
look at my, my fellow elders, you know, this is my, I struggle in how to relate sometimes uh, to, to my fellow elders, okay? And sometimes I struggle as to how we relate to you as a congregation, exactly how do we uh, define the terms and the boundaries and responsibilities and, and so forth and, and, and so on. And, and so uh, just because we have a plurality of elders don't, doesn't mean all our, our, our problems are resolved. The early church had apostles in it, and they still ran into troubles, okay? Just, just, the, just the proper structure doesn't guarantee everything will uh, go uh, well. And so there, there's, there, it's a cooperative effort. Uh, again, it, I was reminded of the old cliche uh, that uh, where there are two Baptists, there's always three opinions. And so, you know, that's, that's kind, of the, uh, kind of sometimes what you uh, deal with. But between the elders and the church, we really don't have what might be called uh, constrict, constrictive power. I can't draft you. I can't sit down and say, okay, here are the six or eight teams, and here are the six or, things, six or eight things we need done in church, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that, and that's your assignment. Now go, do them, and don't come back until you're finished. It doesn't work that way, does it? Again, we work with people that very willingly and typically very joyfully and very eagerly uh, embrace different roles according to uh, kind of the, their giftedness and, and their calls. Uh, and so, uh, so we're aware of that. And as I heard John MacArthur speak fairly recently, and, I, and I, I believe this, whatever power and authority rests with and among the elders, first of all, it's under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Remember what I said, you're not my flock, you're his flock. So I got to give an account for how I treated his sheep. Okay, and all every other elder uh, has to do uh, the very uh, same thing. But the power and authority that we utilize is strictly related to that which is defined and given by the Word of God. Uh, If if the Word of God doesn't really give me authority in that ever area, then you know we we don't we don't have uh, authority uh, there, and so. You've heard me say this. I still remain committed to this. I am a congregationalist. Uh, That is, really, the local authority resides with the church. I've told you before, I will give an account to to God for you, for where you are, you know, how how I have led, how I've nurtured, how I've fed. And you'll give an account for me. You know, a, a church that will tolerate a pastor that will tickle their itching ears isn't much of a church, is it? And they will give an account to God for that. So, there, so there's kind of some reciprocity there. Um, I've said this before. Please don't take this as me just being obnoxious. I don't mean it. I just think it's a fairly insightful line. Some of you have seen these Tom Selleck movies from probably 10 or 15 years ago about Jesse Stone. And in one of the early episodes... Uh, one of the council members in the town says, you know, he was the police chief of the town. And they say, hey, you know, Jesse, we can fire you. Yes, you can. But you can't tell me what to do. And so there's kind of a, a reality there. I, I preach what's in the Word of God. I don't give consideration. Tim, you can't preach that. You shouldn't preach that. That's wrong. That, that doesn't enter in, into it. Now, you can tell me. You can take away my keys. Tell me not to come back. 
but, but my authority is uh, the Word of God. And so we shepherd God's flock, we lead, and we feed, and we protect. We nurture, again, uh, that which God has entrusted to us and to you. Um, and you've heard it said, you know, sheep is not the most flattering identity uh, or symbol for, for the church. They're not, they're not very smart. They, they, they can't defend themselves. Uh, they, they wander off. They, they'll even eat grass that, you know, will kill them. Uh, shepherds have to be constantly overseeing the flock. And we'll say more about this later. But I'm constantly on the lookout for dangerous movements that are uh, somewhat coming uh, to the church and trying to warn you. Sometimes people will send me things and, or ask me about this, that, or the other, whether it's a church or whether it's a message or whether, wh- whatever. And, and, you know, I'll try to, if I don't know about it, look into it. And sometimes I'll say, listen, I, I just don't think this is, this is good. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's biblical. I would warn you uh, away from from that. So that's kind of a a snapshot of what elders do, what these men were doing. They were shepherding the flock there in Ephesus, and the Bible is very, very clear about this business of who should serve as elders. Now, part of the reason to kind of go down this road for a few minutes this morning, uh, I think it dovetails with what we've looked at in the family. Uh, That is that, that God has assigned to the man leadership within the home. And we've spelled that out as clearly as we can. And uh, I, I think probably most people that, that heard this, uh, they're in a agreement with me on these issues. He also has uniquely established this office, this role of the elder, and reserved it for men only. Now, I know that that just seems out of step and, and particularly over this last few months, I've thought, I'm way out of step with the culture. And and I don't mean, when I say these things, I do not mean it as a a demeaning statement about the capabilities or the identity or the essence of of womanhood. We appreciate you. But I, I will say to you very clearly, very emphatically, that the office of pastor, of overseer, of bishop, whatever you want to call it, is reserved for uh, the man. And this comes kind of at a timely uh, moment in that uh, the Southern Baptist Convention just had a kind of a bit of a scuffle. Uh, Most of you have heard of the pastor from California by the name of Rick Warren. And uh, I guess God told him, it's one of those things, you get in trouble sometimes when God starts telling you stuff, you know, uh, unless it's in the Bible. But he, he, he just decided that, that they should be ordaining women to serve as pastors. And the SBC kind of called him on it. And they, they voted to remove them from uh, the fellowship of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I think rightly. And uh, uh, some of you have heard of uh, Stephen Furtick. I believe he's in North Carolina. I don't even know the name of the church. Uh, but evidently he willingly just said, here's our membership in the SBC, one of the largest uh, churches in the country, because we're going to do what we want to do, and that's have women pastors. But again, I I think the Bible is very clear. If you want to follow, I'm going to take just a real quick minute. 
from 1 Timothy 3 and uh, uh, just walk through. I don't have time to exhaust everything, but you see there in 1 Timothy 3, 1, and you can go to Titus 1 and find somewhat of a parallel type of listing of the qualities uh, that uh, uh, a man must demonstrate uh, to hold this office of, uh, of an elder. And uh, you, if you'll just scan it, you just see masculine pronouns, okay? You just see masculine uh, pronouns all through that. And then definitively, he's got to be a husband of one wife, okay? And, and so uh, this passage, Titus, uh, the passage just before this in 1 Timothy 2, uh, make it very clear that only men are to uh, hold this office. Now, it's interesting there in verse 1 of 1 Timothy 3, if anyone aspires or anyone desires, how do you know if you should uh, seek to hold an office such as an elder? So it's really a, a great uh, question. And I can tell you a little bit from my experience. And, and I listen, I am not, you've heard me say this dozens of times, and I am not kidding, that I had no desire to be a preacher, and I didn't even like them, okay? And for the most part, still don't very much. But uh, just kidding a little, but it was not something that I sought out. But as I became a serious student of the Word of God, God began to change me. Now, I was a very busy guy. It wasn't that I was looking for things to do. Uh, I was a married man with three children and uh, two retail stores and, and trying to make a living. And I thought, how in the world can I make this transition at my advanced age? I was about 35, 34, somewhere along, along in there. And I can remember driving down the road one day and hearing my, my dear friend and mentor, John MacArthur, and he referenced Psalm 37, 4 and 5. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, folks, that is not a blank check that you've been looking at uh, magazines and you see some shiny new car or some condo at the beach or some boat or you name it. Oh, I really, really want that, and I know God's going to give it to me. Not what it means. It means if you are consumed with a passion for God, that he's going to put desires in your heart that honor him. And as I began to listen to MacArthur and talk about his own experience, I realized, I think this is what God wants me to do. And I had to jump through a lot of hoops to get here, I assure you. But if it's something that is upon your heart to the extent that you're restless, one, old, one advice I heard years ago, and I think there's some truth to it, if you can't do anything else, become a preacher. Now, there's a bad way of taking that, but if you find satisfaction for your soul, if you find peace in your heart in any other vocation, then maybe there's something else that you should do. And you can honor God with whatever, you, you know, whatever he's gifted you to do. I mean, that's a great proof. Remember? Without Christ, nothing has meaning. With Christ, everything has meaning. You can do everything to the glory of God. So I think that if, if it is just an absolutely um, unrelenting sense within your heart and mind, uh, then 
you can desire, you should desire to serve him in this way. And, and then I would go, what does a pastor do? Well, he ministers, he serves the church, serves people, and he studies the Word of God. Well, if you're not already doing that, God is not calling you to be a pastor. Okay? If you're not already serving the church, and you're not already studying the Word of God, you're just thinking, you're just daydreaming. Okay? You're already doing the things and demonstrating the giftedness and the call and the conviction and the commitment that it will take to serve God's church. Okay? And so this, this man, as the listing goes, and there's about 20 of them, so we can't, but again, a man of character. He is above reproach. He is self-controlled. He is faithful to his wife. He's not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. And you can go down the, the list. But that's, that's a heavy load. That is a heavy, heavy load. And he is one that is able to teach, to hold firm to the trustworthy word. Again, we teach, we preach the word of God for the founding of the people of God, for the nurturing of the people of God. We preach the Word because, and, and as Ephesians 4 speaking to this says, that, that the people in the church will have a tendency to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And so we're to so instruct that everything that happens within the church and everything that happens outside the church in the world doesn't absolutely put you in a spiritual tailspin. That is the goal of, um, of our work. And so you can see there that it's a very, very serious undertaking. And so he calls these men uh, to him. Now let's move forward. He begins to engage in a bit of sober reflection related to this work uh, that they do, that he uh, did. He reminds them of his arrival uh, in Ephesus, that he set an example uh, for them. And look there in verse 19. He says that he was serving the Lord with all humility. And I remember distinctly telling the search committee 20 years ago, you're calling me to do a task that I'm absolutely unable to do. That, that I lack the power to do anything that you would desire for God to do that has eternal value, that I do not have uh, that power. I, I, I wish that I could resolve all the domestic uh, disputes that, that I become aware of. I wish I could resolve the economic distress that many of you have. I wish I could, uh, again, heal the f physical demise that is ubiquitous uh, among us. I wish I could bring spiritual life where there's spiritual death. But all those things are what? God's work. God does those things through his power, not, not through mine. I, I'm simply an instrument. And so if you want to be humbled, and I thought I was humbled when I ran a small business because it, it came to me, wait a minute, there don't, there, there, there's no mandate that customers come through my door. I'm like, I'm standing there every day, come on, come on, I got stuff, I need to sell it to you. And I, where are they? Where are they? Where are, bring your money. And I thought I was humbled, but become a pastor. And you'll realize how powerless and how dependent you are upon 
the power of, of God. And I, I'm so aware that we mentioned this morning, we're about to go to children's camp. And I never presume that everybody I'm speaking with on any given Sunday, that all people in the, our midst are born again, that regenerate, that they have faith. I'm quite sure that we'll be taking children with us to children's camp. Certainly that many of them have not not at least made a public profession of faith, and we would assume that they are, again, unregenerate. And so we're very careful about how we instruct them and what we desire. And as I've said before, what must happen? They must have a new birth experience. God must bring life from death, something that I do not have the power to do. All I can do is be faithful uh, to his truth, trusting him to do his work. And so he did this task with humility and with tears. As an old saying goes, if a shepherd does not smell like sheep, he's not a shepherd. Okay? You got to live with your sheep. When, when the sheep go through a storm, the shepherd goes through a storm. The shepherd doesn't go, wait a minute, it's raining here, sheep. Sheep, I will see you when the sun comes out, but I'm going to go get in the house. You go through the storms with it. You weep with those who weep. You, you weep in their seasons of afflictions, and of course you have the privilege of rejoicing in their seasons of great success and blessing. But again, it's characterized by humility and tears and trials. You have both the issues I mentioned a moment ago of the internal dis uh, problems and the external problems, okay? That uh, people within the church uh, will, will take issue with this, that, and the other and create conflict, and, and that's always a challenge and always unsettling. And then, of course, we face the assaults from the outside, from the unbelieving world, and they're going to become increasingly Intense, it seems, in the, the days ahead. We just went through all of this business of the government shutdowns of, of churches. Okay, in some states it was really, really quite draconian. Uh, my understanding is that there's about to be a movie released of, entitled The Essential Church. It's from uh, those surrounding John MacArthur and what they went through and how they went to court. Uh, to basically force the state to allow them to reopen uh, their, their church. But those things are coming our way. I was asked just in the last couple of weeks, if you knew what, knew what I know now, would I have closed the church during COVID? And my answer is no. My answer is no. I would not. I think it established a precedent that's going to come back and bite us. That's just my opinion. I'm not, now, notice what I said. There could be something come down the pipe that I think it's wise for us not to gather for a temporary thing, but it'd have to go a long way. It'd have to go a long way. And I've said it many times. I thought, I think, you know, uh, the, the lingo, uh, the government officials that say never let a good crisis go to waste. And what the, the power they grabbed, they ain't giving back. They never do. So at any rate, we've got all of this affliction and all of this hostility that's going to cause us to, to have trials. And so uh, we need to be prepared to stand up to the opposition. And so Paul reminds them, again, of his humility and the tears and the trials. In verse 20, 
I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public from house to house. He had a singular message that was characterized by bold proclamation, something that will be stated here in a, a little bit later in the passage, preaching the whole counsel of God. I've, I received correspondence twice this past week. Uh, one was a phone call from a friend uh, in my hometown, uh, another from somebody uh, locally by text. And talk, the guy that called me was like, how did those people down there put up with you? He'd been listening to the, re the sermons recently. Let me make sure. How, 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 what's, what's going on down there? I mean, is everybody not mad at you for what, what you've said? And then I got a text, and it, it was, uh, well, that, those, these last two sermons were, were bold and faithful uh, to, to the Word. Uh, I don't know if the itching ears culture of our day is going to listen, and you'll never pastor a megachurch was, was kind of the upshot. And uh, I do not think of myself as bold. I think of myself as being under the authority of the Word of God. I think the Word of God is bold. And I, I was telling one of our young men this morning, there's a real deeply rooted part of my personality. Is I just want to stand up and say, y'all do your thing and I'll do mine. I, I don't want to get into your messy lives and I don't want you in my messy life. Just you paddle your boat and I'll paddle mine. And yet, I'm bound by the Word of God to say what the Word of God says to us. And I don't think that's necessarily bold. It's just attempting to be faithful to the God who inspired His Word, who will illuminate our hearts and minds for agreement, uh, for, uh, uh, for obedience uh, to what uh, He has uh, given to us. And so, Maybe, it's, maybe it is bold, I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, but the, the preachers I admire say basically the same thing. And, and so, again, I think they're faithful men. And so, listen, soft preaching pr creates hard hearts. This is not original to me. And hard preaching produces uh, soft and large hearts, which is what we want to do. Paul says, I did not shrink. There's our figure of speech, a, a latotes, a, again, a, a, a a negative statement that is a positive affirmation of something. Again, I didn't shrink. I was bold. I was bold because I have confidence in God and His Word, that His Word does not uh, return void, that, that He has sent us out. He's going to build His church, and He's given us the tools and the weapons, the instruments that we need to build His church, and I have confidence in that. And so in doing that, and we've emphasized this for, for many, many years, well, Tim, what, how, do, how do I apply this message to my life? Repent and believe. That's always the application. Repent and believe. Where you find yourself failing in terms of the Word of God, you repent. And then you thank, you thank God for the gospel. That because even your repentance falls short of perfection. And there's a Savior who clothes us in his perfect righteousness. And so that is the language we use. That is the language we'll be do, using this week at our children's camp. We don't call, listen, I think probably 
we could bring back every child on this trip and stand them up here Sunday morning and tell them that every one of these children have asked Jesus into their heart and we're going to baptize them. Every single one of them. I think you do more harm than good. I've said that. We'll call upon these children to repent and believe the gospel and examine them over the course of time. We'll talk to the parents. Do you see what, what might suggest that the Spirit of God has so come upon him that they have been raised from death unto life? They have been born again to a living hope in a resurrected Savior. That's the way we'll do it. And so we have confidence and we can speak boldly that God will use the faithful proclamation. Well, it's going to be over their head, and you're going to... Nah. Nah. You'll be shocked. You'll be shocked at what they're going to get out of what's going to be said. And so we call for repentance and faith. We're going to come back to this next week. We can see the heart of the pastor and continuity with the various challenges that this call entails. God has created and designed His church for a particular purpose with a particular well-revealed order. May we be faithful as we pursue both His purpose of using us and His church in the advance of His kingdom. That is our prayer. And I hope that we've been able to give you some understanding of how God has not only organized the home as he has, but organized the church as he has for, again, the good of our souls and for the advance of his kingdom, a kingdom that is absolutely certain to be built and is being built. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us, how we would pray that you would bless these things to us, that we would honor you, that indeed, that as we take the word of God and we examine this word, that as sin is exposed, we would repent. Maybe some of us gathered here would need to 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 initially repent for the, the first time that the Holy Spirit has so worked and so illuminated their, our, our minds that we're aware that indeed we're a sinner and we must turn from our sin and trust a Savior whose name is Jesus. Whether it's for that first time, for that, that, that first quickening of the light of heaven that awakens us from our death, or whether it's what's normative for each and every one of us, that we find that we fall short. And we're thankful that as we confess our sins, you are indeed faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that the work of our Savior on the cross at Calvary is indeed effective and sufficient for our salvation. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.